want to go to Children's Church, you can make your way down there right now. Uh, everyone else, though, I'd love for you to turn to Astra chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 6 all the way to chapter 7, verse 10 today. And uh, I've titled this sermon, um, The Pivot. Uh, let me call this, yeah. I want to say, what I titled it, Present for the Pivot. And what we're going to learn about today is uh, we're going to learn about Haman's terrible, horrible, not so good day. So it's, uh, it's, uh, he's, he's, we're looking at a very, very, very bad day for Haman today. And the reason that I, I want to look at this this morning is uh, this is a story where the entire story of, uh, of Esther, the entire book of Esther pivots, is that the whole book is leading up to this one event. And then the whole story pivots between the first and second supper. So we talked about that first supper last week a little bit. And now we are the, the whole story is going to change. Because what is happening at this point in the story is that the story has been on a downward trajectory from chapter 1. So in chap, very, the very first thing we learn about is that there is a very, very, very uh, prideful king. And we learn about how prideful and how uh, luxurious his life is and all this kind of thing. We learn about how much of a numbskull he is, about how he asked his wife to do something completely inappropriate. And then what winds up happening is that Esther is forced to marry someone that she does not want to marry. She is forced to hide who she really is. And then the story just kind of gets worse from there. Her cousin Mordecai saves someone, gets no recognition for it. But a man named Haman, who is an evil man, is promoted. And at that point in time, he actually becomes, uh, he puts into a place a plan to eradicate every Hebrew living in Persia. So the story just kind of gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse for the people of God. And so what winds up happening is that uh, we... Uh, Mordecai goes to Esther and says, hey, you got to speak to your husband. you gotta, you got to speak on behalf of your people. And he kind of convinces her to do that. And that's where we picked up the story last week, where we, Esther agrees to help the people. And we talked about what she did, is that what she wound up doing is she goes in, and instead of going to the king, she takes some time to fast, uh, and she takes some time to dress up to respect the king, and then she, she invests in the relationship by uh, inviting the king to one dinner. And we pick up the story here in chapter 5, verse 6. So they're at the one dinner the king has, or Esther has invited both the king and Haman to this dinner. Things are going well. It's an awesome dinner. And uh, this is where the story picks up. It says this. As they were drinking wine after the feast... The king said to Esther, what is it that you wish? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even up to half of the kingdom, it is fulfilled. So Xerxes, Xerxes is not really a very moral man, but he's not a stupid man either. He's very smart. He knows that Esther has come to, his, uh, to, to see him without permission risking her life, so he knows that there's more to the story than just, hey, I'd like to have a nice quiet dinner with you and your second in command. There's more to it. He knows that. 
And so he's like, okay, I'll play along. I'll, I'll go to the dinner. And then during the dinner, after he's had his fill of wine, have you noticed that there's a lot of drinking in the story? He asked her a second time. And now here's the time, right? Here's the time for Esther to say something. She's prayed and she's fasted. She's spent hours dressing up for the king to look nice. She's put on this great dinner. She's put the tablecloths in the right place. She's set up the nice decor. There's smooth jazz. I don't know if there's smooth jazz. Probably not, right? And everyone's in good spirits, right? She's in a good spot. The food is great. The wine is great. Haman is there. He has absolutely no idea he is being set up to take the fall right here. And the king is in a good mood. This is the time to act. Haman is ready to be ousted right here. In this moment, she should speak, right? That's what she does. Right, church? That's what she does. She speaks, right? Oh, come on. I know you're tired. Does she speak or not? Yes. No, she doesn't. We're not really told why, but she doesn't kind of oust Haman right here. What she does do is she invites them for a second dinner happening the next day. It says this. My wish and my request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king asks. So she says, hey, I'm not quite ready to tell you what I need to tell you and ask what I need to ask of you. So here's the deal. Can we have another dinner? And I'll tell you there. And King Hazazarus, I, I hope you get the idea by now that the king loves two things. He loves a party and he loves drinking. And so his wife says, I'll throw you another one. And he says, sure. So that's what happens. Well, because this has happened and because they've had such a good time, what winds up happening is that Haman is having a great time. He's having an amazing time. Has no idea that he's being set up. Says this in verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. I got to have dinner with the king and his wife. I'm someone special. But that all fell apart as he was walking home. As he was walking home, joyful and like, my world rocks, I'm the best guy in the entire world, he happens to see Mordecai. And he hates Mordecai. Like with a burning passion, he hates him. And I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever experienced this, but you are at an event or you're, you're, you're engaged in some sort of activity and you are having the best time in the entire world. Life is good, you know... Everything is amazing. You're having a great time with your friends. And then all of a sudden, that one person who you, who you hate, but you're not allowed to say you hate because you're a Christian, walks through the door. And all of a sudden, your mood changes. That's what happens here. It says this, But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with what? wrath against him. It's amazing how bitterness can destroy your evening, can it? 
But nevertheless, he maintains his composure and he goes home and he brags about how awesome he is. It says this, he goes home to his wife. He says, nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of the riches, the number of sons, all the promotions in which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king, right? So he's saying, I'm kind of a big deal, and I want you to know that I'm a big deal. But he says that no matter how good those things are, he can't get over his hatred for Mordecai. He says it like this, yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew standing at the king's gate. So he's got everything in the life that he ever wanted. He's got all the riches. He's got all the fame. He's got all the position. And he said, it's worth nothing to me as long as Mordecai lives. So his wife, bless her heart, very supportive wife, right? Suggests that he kills him. Now, I really struggle with this because on one hand, I'm very thankful that, you know, she's in his corner. But it. It's the wrong corner, <laughs> right? This is not good advice. This is what she says. Then his wife's arrest, and all his friends said to him, let a gallows, a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So, you know, his day starts off good, right? He goes with the king. He sees Mordecai. It's bad. He says, what am I going to do about him? He's ruining my, my vibe. His wife says, I'm going to, why don't you just kill him? And uh, he says, that's a good idea. Now, just for a little bit of reference here, the gallows mentioned here are probably not for hanging a victim. Okay? It's uh when you and I read the text, you kind of think of maybe of an old Western where, you know, the guy, the platform is made and there's a noose. The guy stands in the stool and the stool's kicked out for him and he's hanging, that kind of thing. It's actually not that kind of idea. It's a primitive form of crucifixion. I won't, I'll spare you the bloody details, but uh, basically what happens is a person... A, a pointed stick is set upright in the ground and the culprit is taken and forced to sit on it and they force and push the body through the stick. Okay. It is a most dreadful species of punishment in which revenge and cruelty uh, are, it, it's, it's made to, it's not even made to physically hurt, it's made to humiliate the person. And I, just as a point of reference for this, this is a, um, this is the beginnings or the kind of uh, the, a primitive form of the crucifixion, okay? So if you remember, Jesus gets crucified on the cross. The Romans, they would hang soldiers on a cross, or not soldiers, uh, the thieves and criminals on a cross, to just, not only uh, as, as a way of punishment, but to humiliate them. And what they did is they kind of, borrowed that idea and kind of perfected it. I don't, I don't know, that sounds morbid. They perfected it from the Persians, right? And what you need to understand is that in this story, the gallows is 75 feet tall. It's a big pointy stick. 
So, uh, someone correct me if I'm wrong, but I, the water tower in Three Hills is about 100 feet, give or take, right? All right, so this is about three-thirds the size of it. And I, I just, just, just for illustration, it, sometimes when, you, when you're driving west and you're driving into town, you kind of come over that little bit of a hill near A&W, and you can see the top of the water tower as you're driving into town. Well, just so you get a, a, a picture of what he's trying to do here, in the place of a water tower, imagine that you see Mordecai hanging from a stick as tall as the water tower. And that's sort of the idea that's going on here. Now, why is he doing that? Because he wants to make an example of Mordecai. It's not just that he wants to kill him. He wants to humiliate him. He wants to instill fear in everybody. And so... Uh, this is pretty crazy, and I just want to point this out because I really want you to understand that this is gross and disgusting, and that you and I should never underestimate the destructive and distorting power of hatred, the irrational, violent hatred that made Haman want to see Mordecai hang to his death is the same irrational, violent hatred that made people want to hang Jesus on the cross. It's gross. It's disgusting. It's, it's the ultimate example of why sin is so destructive. So, that's, that's the plan. Mordecai is, uh, <clears throat> Haman is planning Mordecai's death. Meanwhile, the king can't sleep. And so what the king does is, as he, is, it's, it's, it's the night, he's, He's not having a good sleep, so he decides, you know what, I'm just going to read a list of all the accomplishments that I made as a king. It says this, on the night that the king could not sleep, he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and, and they were read before the king. And it was found how Mordecai had, uh, had told about Begatha and Sheresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who sought to lay hands on King Azazar. So you remember way back when I told you a story about how Mordecai uncovered a plot to kill the king and he saved the king. He never got recognized for that. The king said, what honor or distinction has been stowed upon Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended and say nothing has been done for him. So he's like, well, we can't have that. So the next morning he gets up and says, I'm going to do something for Mordecai. And then he's like, I can't think of anything I'm going to do. I need some help. And then he realizes that Haman is in the courts. He's like, I know. Haman is a good guy. He's smart. He's my second in command. I, if I need some wisdom on how to honor somebody, I'm going to go ask him, right? Meanwhile, Haman is planning Mordecai's downfall, right? So he goes in and says, what should be done of the young man? Uh, I think I went ahead here, didn't I? Oh yeah, here we go. What honor or distinction should be bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young, young men attended him and said, nothing has been done for him. And then the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young man told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let Haman come in. So Haman came in and the king said, 
What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Now, you remember at this point, Haman has a big ego. He's just told his wife and his friends how amazing he is and how the king is promoted to him. And so the, Haman said to himself that the king's delight to honor, who he's talking about me. And so Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse the king has ridden on, and whose head has a royal crown set upon him. And so the king says, that's a great idea. Do that for Mordecai. Right? So this is where the start of the bad day, right? He comes in. He's like, I hate that guy. And I know the king loves me so much, he'll grant me Mordecai's death. So he goes in, all ready to plan. And he said, and the king says, hey, I want to I bless somebody. Someone is doing amazing things. What should I do? Haman thinks it's about him. He gives this big idea, and he says, all right, do that for Mordecai. So what do you think happens? Well, Mordecai is honored, and Haman is humiliated goes on and says this, So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done for the man who delights and honors the king. So do you see the irony in this, right? What's going on? Like, um, he is literally praising the guy that he hates. And you just got to imagine the toll that it takes on your ego, right? Well, it took... It took a big hit on his ego because it says this. After this all happened, <laughs> Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife's arrest and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Jeresh said to him, "If Mordecai, before whom you have begun, is to, uh, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall." is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. And this is where he's wise, right? This is where he's like, ah, you know what? I should have, I should have, I should stop, right? So that's part of his terrible day. His plan is not going well. So I don't know what happens to you when your day is awful, but I tend to want to hide, right? Sweatpants, dirty hoodie, an MCU marathon, that kind of thing. I just want to hide. Mordecai, or Simon Haman can't hide because guess what? He's got a dinner to go to. So all this is happening in the span of a day. So, says in the text, while they were still talking with him, so he's having this conversation and all his friends are like, you need to stop. This is bad news. The king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Right. So there's the second dinner. And during the dinner, this is where everything kind of comes to a head. Esther pleads for her people. She says this. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, like I said, lots of drinking, lots of food, and the king said to Esther, What is it you wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you what is your request. Even up to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, 
And this is where the story pivots. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been, so, for we have been sold I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If, it had not, if we had been merely sold to slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then king, so he basically says, hey, she basically says to him, listen, I need to tell you something. I need you to save my life, that of my people, and I wouldn't have bugged you if it was any other issue, but I'm about to die, and I need you to save me. The king says this, Then King Hazazarus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who has dared to do this to you? So you remember, the king really likes his wife, right? And no guy that I know, like if someone is threatening his wife, this is exactly how you would respond. Where is he? I'm getting the shotgun. Right? And Esther said, he's a foe and an enemy. You kind of got to read it like that, right? There you got it with some emotion. It's that wicked man named Heman. And now I'm picturing this, right? And I'm picturing him just chugging back a glass of wine. Oh, life is good. I just need to forget about Mordecai. And, he, and Esther's like, he did it. And he kind of takes this big gulp and he's like, oh, no, I'm in trouble. Right, because this is what happens next. Haman is hanged. The king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. So he just ups and leaves. Right? I am so angry. I'm just gonna leave. Right? This is a typical guy. Right? A big problem. Like what's going on? I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna get out of here. I'm gonna go to the shop. Right? Work on the combine. Right? Except he's the king. He doesn't work on the combine. He gets other people to do that, right? But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined to come against him by the king. Yeah, no kidding, (laughs) right? And uh, so he's begging. He's like, Esther, I'm so sorry. Like, please, please save my life. And, And here's what happens, right? The king comes back because he knows he has to deal with this. And here's what he says. Um, He says, he returned to the place where the king, where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence? So here he is begging and the king walks in and he's seeing something not really appropriate going on here. At least that's how he's interpreting it which just enrages him all the more, right? And so what he says is, as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harborna, one of the king's eunuchs, in attendance of the king, said, the more, however, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, who, whose words saved the king, is standing in Haman's house. So he's basically saying, king, I don't know if you know this or not, but the guy that you honored yesterday, the guy that saved your life, Mordecai wanted to hang on a 75-foot stick in front of everybody. And so, as you know, King Xerxes has a bit of a temper. He's been drinking, and so what he does is he says, what does it say in the last part of the verse? 
hang him on. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai, and then the wrath of the king abated. Now that's interesting, because the people aren't saved yet, are they? But the king's fine. <laughs> so here's what I think is very interesting. Throughout the book, I want to make a couple observations about this. Throughout the book, it seems like, and I've mentioned this before, it seems like Esther is of, of uh, two identities. She actually has two names. That's why I believe the Bible actually gives her two names. She has her Hebrew name and her Persian name. I believe that she's got a conflicted identity, and what we see here is that Esther has come into her own faith. She's come into a maturing relationship with God. She's now starting to stand on her own faith. She's thinking of others and not just herself. She's active and not passive. She's speaking and she's not silent. She's taking a risk, which is by faith, and she's not cowering in tower, which in terror, which is by fear. And she just basically says this, I need you to save God's people because I am one of God's people. She identifies herself as one of God's followers. And I believe at some point, if we are to care about the people, the lost, Canadians or Albertans or Three Hillians or Ghost Pineans, is that how you would say it? Yeah, sure. We'll put a pin in that. Our families, our friends, at some point we're going to stop to have to hide and we're going to have to admit that we are one of God's people. That we are going to identify ourselves as Christ followers and help save our people, our, the lost people of this world. It's going to require that. It's here that I want to point out that the, the entire story of Esther pivots between the first and second feast, that everything comes to the middle here. Do you remember me telling you during communion that the, when you write Hebrew literature, the climax of the story, the, the, the center point, the main focus of the story, the point of the most suspense in the story is in the middle of the story. Well, here we see that because what is happening is, what is, is everything is going bad for the people of God, Right? Azazarus is in power, Vashti is deported, Esther is forced to become queen, she has to hide her identity, Mordecai is, saves the king, he's not elevated for it, Haman is elevated for it, the people of God are in trouble, it just feels like it's a downward spiral. And at this moment, it's only in the middle of the story by the way, the whole story changes. And it pivots. And a great reversal happens. I don't know if you can see this. I tried to like draw it, but I'm trying to draw an arrow, right? And you can see that, you know, here's the story. Here's the first half of the story right here. We talk about Azazar's greatness, how Haman is elevated, how Haman decrees Persians can kill Jews. And then it all crescendos right in the middle of this big feast. And every, all of a sudden, everything switches, Haman's ego is stroked in the first feast, and Haman plots to hang Mordecai. And by the time that you get to the second feast, Mordecai is honored, Haman is not, and Haman is the one that is hanged on the tree instead of Mordecai. And then what you see, what we're going to see through the rest of the story, is it's a great reversal. Everything opposite here 
starts happening good for the people of God here. So instead of Haman decreeing that Persians can kill the Jews, Esther and Mordecai will save the people. We'll learn about that next week. Instead of Haman being elevated, the king now elevates Mordecai into Haman's position. And instead of the book starting out with how great Hazazarus is, and his kingdom and his feast, the very last three verses of the entire book talk about how Mordecai is great. It's the great reversal. It's the pivot in the story. And the reason that I'm pointing this out is simply for this reason. God is present for the pivot. God sets up the circumstances needed for the reversal. Everything in the story is he's working through. He's working through Hazazarus' pride. He uses Vashti's removal to place Esther there so she can speak. He uses Esther's looks to win the king's favor. He places Mordecai there to call Esther to battle. He is working through the, king, the king's loves of feasts and wine to his advantage. He's working through Mordecai to save the king. There are no coincidences in this story. There are just too many random things to happen to see that God is not in and present through the entire story. He is working from every event to get to here so he can create the pivot. This is not random. There is a designer. There is a coordinator. There is a power behind all of this. God literally thunders through this book. He, there is providence. He's working through people, places, times, and actions. It is more than miraculous, and yet he is never mentioned once. And yet he's moving. I want you to catch this. The main observation that I would take from this is that God will never allow his people to be destroyed, even when he's silent. Remember what I said about Esther is that there's no mention of God in this book. Here's the deal, friends, and I want you to hear this very loud and clear. The church of Jesus Christ is created by God, and long after all the kingdoms of this earth will fall, when Canada is no more, when the United States is no more, when the nations that you think of as great and are unstoppable are in this world are no more, the people of God will still stand. God has placed his purposes behind his people, and even when God is silent, he is still protecting you. And it's been that way since Genesis all the way up to 2023. Every single time, God's people are in a place of danger. God has never let his people be destroyed. Is, did he let his people be destroyed with Pharaoh? No. Did he let his people be destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar? No. Is he letting his people be destroyed by Haman? No. And now what I want to say is that no matter what happens, no matter what adversity comes against the people of God, no matter what crisis happens, no matter what persecution happens, we are still here. Because God will never let his people be destroyed. <clears throat> I 
Even when God is silent, he is protecting you. And why am I talking about this? Uh, this, is, this message today is sort of the main reason why I want to look at the book of Esther, the kind of the crescendo, the main kind of point about why I think we as a church need to study the book of Esther, and that's simply this, is that um, it is a scary time. And we need to remember the words of Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 8, which says, The Lord who goes before you, he will be with you, he will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or do not be dismayed. If you're finding yourself dealing with anxiety and fear these days, be assured that you're not alone. It's undeniable. It, mean, it seems like everywhere we turn, we find another reason to be troubled, that we are in crisis, that we will be destroyed. Another source of trepidation in the headlines speak of war in Israel and Gaza. The headlines speak of brewing issues with Iran or Russia or China as they are increasingly chummy and colloquial and then add to those issues just the countless domestic issues that we are facing in our own country, our political problems, and our own personal problems. It's a scary time to be alive, isn't it? I don't want you to hear an amen, but maybe just a head nod would be helpful, right? It is a scary time. And our world thinks it's a scary time. Do you know what it feels like? It feels like the vibe or the atmosphere is that we're waiting for the shoe to drop. So in this story, in Esther's story, you got to remember what happens is that Haman makes a, sets a date and then publicly tells people when it's going to happen. And it's about a year. So there's a year in between when he sets his plan of motion and when it actually happens. And, it, and it's there, and the reason he's doing that is he's creating this sense of fear and trepidation and anxiety. And it feels like right now we're in the middle of it. We're waiting for this big shoe to drop, like this crisis to happen. Something's going to go wrong. And it's not just Christians that think that way. <clears throat> I was reading the newspaper the other day, and it, this is the headline that came up on the news feed. It says, the biggest threat to global order, CEOs think that the biggest threat to global order since the 1930s is underway. And every CEO is talking about it. It goes on to talk about, you know, how the geopolitical climate right now has entered into the business world and the workplace on a level that CEOs have not seen in a very long time. There are churches right now they're doing sermon series on the end times. Do I think that we are living in the end times? My answer to that is I don't know. No one knows the day or hour. But here's what I would say is every day that Jesus doesn't come back is a day closer to it the way he does. And Luke 21, 26 says this. It says that when in the last days men's hearts will fail them for fear for they are apprehensive of the things of which are coming to the earth. Does that not feel true today? Right. And in all of it, it seems like God's not there. It seems he's silent. God's silence seems like it's, he's absent. That he's not working, he's not moving that the world is burning and he's not doing anything about it. And I, I want to tell you straight out that the point of Esther is to say this. 
even in his, the silence, when you can't see him working, God is at work. He's defending you. He goes before you. He's there beside you. And if you ever wander from him, he'll find you. If you are a believer, goodness and mercy will always follow you. He's your defender. Do not be afraid or discouraged. The Lord will go ahead of you. He will be with you. He will neither fail you nor abandon you. And the reason that I'm mentioning all of this and I'm spending the fall on Esther is because I believe that some of you are here this morning and you are currently going through a crisis and a matter of suffering for following Jesus or you will go through a period of suffering. If you, will, if you aren't suffering now, you will at some point for Jesus. At some point in your life, following Jesus will place you in a spot of crisis and suffering. You cannot follow Jesus and not encounter suffering at some point in your life. And in those moments of suffering and crisis, you will call out to God that your life is going to, and your life is going to fall apart and feel like the book of Esther. And he's going to feel like he's not saying anything or doing anything or his presence is not obvious. It will be a crisis moment. And here's what I'm afraid that will happen to you. You will suffer. You will be in a crisis moment. You will call out to God for help. He won't answer. You'll read your Bible. You're not going to get anything out of it. You're going to be praying, and it feels like you're going to talk to the wall. You're going to come to the church. You're not going to get any church. You're just going to feel like he's just silent, that he's not there, and you're going to lose heart. I want to tell you today that the book of Esther tells you that God is working even when we can't see him. I hope you can see that he is present in the pivot. That he's been working all along to get to the point where he gets to this dinner so that Esther can tell the king to save the people and that's what he does. Because here's what I want you to know and understand. His silence is not a time for you to give up but to press in to believe that every believer will make the mistake at some point of assuming God's silence means that he's absent. And in that moment, you will feel like giving up. But I want to tell you that Esther tells us that God's providence is at work, even when we don't see him. And I think that is a good message that we can take to the world today, can it? Because our whole world is scared. We talked about that a little bit in Sunday school. I, I don't plan these things. Like I, I don't, I don't go to stand and say I'm going to talk about fear today. Like that's 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 not what happened. Like, uh, but I want you to know that because we are the people of God, God will always protect His people. Long after. All the wars and hardships will win. God will never allow his people to be destroyed. Even when it doesn't seem like he's, in the, he's, he's obviously there. He is your silent guardian. Protecting you and working in the moments that you don't see. And I really want you to hold on to that in times in your faith and your journey with God. When you feel like he's not moving. I guarantee you that he is. 
you're just not seeing it. So that's my great encouragement to you because I know that some of you will go through times of hardship and I want you to trust in the Lord. So that is sort of the reason and the pivot and the main idea about why I wanted to study Esther this fall. We got two more messages to wrap up the book of Esther, but I really want you to be encouraged with the idea that God will never abandon you, destroy you, or forsake you. So you never have to worry about that. Amen? Amen. Let's close with one more song.